0: The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan Green. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. For those here, good afternoon for those here. I was very inspired by uh Rosh's talk yesterday, and it got me to thinking about our history here and the Sango and the Shuso and the process and my appreciation for this place for both the immediacy of us who are here and practice, and also going back as far as we can to every being that has allowed us to be here in this way. I was particularly... I practiced for a while when I came here, and I was particularly attracted to Zen Mountain Monastery and to this order, this is a religious order, I always keep that in mind. It's not just a monastery or a temple or a center, but it's an order. Because coming from a practice place which concentrated just on Zazen pretty much, and there were other aspects of the practice, but the almost total emphasis was on Zazen, which I greatly appreciated and greatly needed, and also recognized that there were aspects of myself that weren't being touched by that practice by itself. And um, I went looking for other ways to help myself, and I found a number of them. But eventually, the time came for me to move on from there. And I could have gone any place, and I came here, partially because of Daito Roshi. And to a large extent, from Daito Roshi, the way that we practice here, which is, both has tremendous depth and tremendous uh, width, if you will, that struck me as essential to a functional awakening, which is what I wanted, an awakening that affected my life and your life. And um, so that and much more came up for me when Shugan Roshi was talking about the history and how this place always wasn't like this. Some of us older folk, I was considering the Zendo floor, I remember when it was replaced and the old floor had hills and dales and valleys and uh, nails and uh, other adventuresome aspects to it, um, noises. Uh, and I appreciated that all at the time, mainly because it reminded me of a basketball floor, but that's another story. Um, but the, the sense of, of having lived life, so to speak, So here we are, uh, Shuso Hosan, with a Shuso and a journey of the Shuso, which is both very visible and um, very challenging. And um, a lot of what happens is not completely visible, but you can see it when Uh, They're first invited to give an encouragement talk in the zendo or uh, at work practice, and there's a tremor in the voice and perhaps a stammer or some equivalency to that. And as the three months goes on, how the person matures, how uh, usually by... The second session, you ask them how they're doing. The first session, they're, oh, it's fine. I'm, you know, I'm getting through this. And the second session, you ask them how they're doing. They kind of look at you with big eyes and in a bit of a shock. And, um, and hopefully by the third session, <laughs> ready to go. Um, which, of course, will come to a conclusion on Sunday. And to me, this is all part of the process. That we... Together, do. Uh, And it's, I think, crucial that we are as a Sangha together in this. And um, that kind of led me to this talk, which is on a koan, a very particular koan. And it's not a koan that's, I think, Offered much in talks because of the well, for various reasons that I think you'll see. So it's case number 14 in the Blue Cliff record. And a monastic asked Human, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And Human said an appropriate statement. That's it. That's all, folks. I mean, that's the whole go on. So, here's a koan, a teaching, that invites us, just as the Atisha's slogans do, to come back to our fundamental awareness and what that awareness rests on. You know, whenever you encounter a concise, short koan like this, especially if it has an obvious point, I think it's wise to consider maybe that's not what it's pointing to, <laughs> what you might grab onto, um, that there's more to this koan than you might see at first glance. And it's not in the Blue Cliff Record by chance. I mean, the Blue Cliff Record is a marvelous compendium of a hundred koans, highly respected by Dogen. It said on his last night in China, he spent on his pilgrimage to China before returning to Japan. He spent the, the whole night copying all the koans to bring back. I don't know if he had encountered it before. My, my sense is, perhaps not. Uh, why wait last night to scribble it down? Um, but um, um, it's, it's a very particular book of koans. And this is a very particular koan from a very particular teacher. And this koan asks us to go deeper, as all koans do. Past skillful doing, which is where we might lodge, you know, appropriateness. Uh, Let's be skillful in how we interact with everybody, and uh, we'll live happily ever after. But something much more fundamental, our fundamental basis of being is being pointed at in this koan, as in so many koans. So what is it that uman's an appropriate statement is asking us to see into? We're often set in how we think and understand ourselves and others. And why not? It's gotten us this far, right? Um, but, in our accustomed habits and the way that we proceed and how we live, there may be a problem. Um, it's the basic challenge of endlessly being dissatisfied. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, in a way, uh, we have everything we need. Um, and our lives, perhaps, are mostly fine. Maybe not, but maybe they are. But even so, there's a, a subtle, pervasive dissatisfaction within our life that we may encounter. And we can frame this dissatisfaction in many ways. Uh, we know how the Buddha framed it. He pointed at the suffering that arises from our endless desires and the nature of those desires to self-perpetuate. And as we begin to practice, as we go deeper within our zazen, we become more and more familiar with our habitual mind patterns and with the subtleties of our anxieties. And I think that was the most amazing thing to me over time as I did more and more zazen, is just how so it takes so little to have a thought of, I call it anxiety, and that's kind of it, of kind of wanting it to be a little different this moment than it actually is, and how endless that is, and how subtle it is. And that becomes more and more apparent as we come face to face with our endless focus on ourself, which is Sazen, which Ayala Sazen brings us to, we begin to see that our stories are endless and about ourselves. You know, what else is so interesting to us except ourself? Um, And we also begin to encounter just how clever we are. We are really good in rationalizing our tendencies to endlessly self-reference. And we have a lot of different disguises, right? So even in the midst of a wonderful monastery such as this, some of those disguises will be helping others. I know that one. Or, um, there's really no problem here. Or, yes, I did that action, but it didn't hurt anybody. Or, I won't do that action, I'll just fold up into myself, so to be safe that way, or, 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 or. And we're really smart about this. We, we know how to do this and to how to justify our endless focus on ourselves that even when we deny that we may be turning our focus to ourselves even in the midst of those denials and i think it helps to begin to clarify really clarify deeply and on an ongoing basis why we're practicing and to keep reminding ourselves of that, and of course, it changes. Right? Everybody essentially comes to practice because of ourself, and in one way or another, our own dissatisfaction, our own complaints, <laughs> our own uh, problems. Um, otherwise, why do this? It's it's really challenging. Uh, And we can pretty easily supply a reason why we practice. But, you know, like the Guardian Council does, we can take away that reason, right? And go deeper and deeper and deeper until we hit something that doesn't yield. And at least for a while we can rest there. But of course, we're practicing, hopefully. And that changes. And, you know, I can recall in my own journey, clearly I started because of suffering. I relate to suffering, my suffering, your suffering. And I've always done that. And that comes out of my life experience. But after a while, I knew I should be practicing for you, but that wasn't why I was practicing. Um, I couldn't quite articulate why I was practicing after a while. I, I knew I must practice. And so that was my answer that I arrived at, if you, if you will. I have to. I have no choice. And I didn't say that casually because from another perspective, I had plenty of choice. But I had no choice. I was driven to it. And then later, other things. As my zazen went deeper and my practice went on, other perspectives of this path became clearer and clearer to me. And a a pretty fundamental realization that my happiness depended on your happiness. And how could I affect that? And it goes on from there. And that's still a work in progress. So clarifying why we practice, why we practice, is an ongoing question. A question that's worth keeping before us because we need to, because our feelings are going to change, our circumstances are going to change. Sometimes it's easy to practice, maybe now, but maybe not tomorrow, or next month, or next year, when your lover dies, or, or, or. So some thoughtful consideration is helpful here. In one of the slogans, number 55, it says, and there are different translations, and one of the most interesting things about the slogans is how different masters and teachers look at them and understand them and interpret them so differently, which gives plenty of room to kind of pick the one you like and relate there. Another perspective is to pick the one you don't like (laughs) and relate there. Um, But it says, liberate yourself by examining and analyzing. That's what it states. And Pema Chodron's commentary on this says, know your own mind with honesty and fearlessness. See what leads to more freedom and what leads to more suffering. This can liberate you from continually getting hooked by self-centered thoughts and emotions, the root of all dissatisfactions. So liberate yourself by examining and analyzing. And the interesting thing about these slogans is that they can help or they can be a trap. And if you notice, so many of the slogans balance one another, right? If you go too far in one direction, the next slogan kind of pulls you back in the other direction. And this particular slogan and the commentary on it, know your own mind with honesty and fearlessness, is not casual. My experience with myself and with many of us is that we're pretty good at analyzing ourselves. It's kind of culturally part of where we live. And as I reflected earlier, that analysis can be a way to put an end to the question, because now you know something about yourself, and also a way to avoid the question. You know, how do you know the answer to a question, to a fundamental question? So you come up with an answer, and it feels right. So... That's the end of your questioning. This is the answer, right? But how do you know? So I keep that in mind in my questioning. I don't know. I may have a sense that where I'm at, with the exploration of the question, holds me for the moment. But is there more? And every time I ask that, eventually I find more. It always changes as I continue to practice. So I'm cautious about knowing and examining, examining and analyzing your mind will lead you to some destination that is an answer. Will lead you to liberation. I think it helps, but it's provisional, as all of these slogans are provisional. Understanding how our mind habitually travels on our well-worn paths of self-involvement and become familiar with our suffering can free us from what hooks us. And I think zazen is central to this process. When we sit and trust the zazen, and when I say trust the zazen, what that means to me is not stop with some accustomed place in zazen and not so much rest there, but just be so familiar with it and be comfortable with it that this is where I'm supposed to be. Maybe. I don't know. Um, But I haven't found the bottom of zazen. And it's not that I'm looking for the bottom. I'm just looking. I'm just looking. And I feel that in our zazen we have a functional responsibility to be wary of our self-serving actions in our practice. and to be careful. And at the same time, have the freedom to just let it go and sit. And so, there's no single place to just rest in. And yet, from another perspective, we are resting. So zazen, and this way of thinking about it, leads to an intentionality and a focus in a practice. And interestingly enough, Cohen practice invites us to go beyond our habitual ways of framing ourselves. It does this in a manner that takes you beyond your dualistic way of thinking that we so automatically live out of. Because we're so imbued in our, in this pattern, koans could be a skillful way to see where we stick in our practice. And the practice, to be clear, is the practice of realization. I don't think we can do koans by ourselves. Maybe. A given individual can, but I don't think so. I think we're too smart for our own good, too clever. And koans are too subtle. And our mind tends to get immersed in our false projections of ourself that inevitably is dualistic. And of course, koans are not the only way to investigate how to realize our true nature. It's one way. But because they're so, in a way, precise and clear about what they're asking when you do a deep dive into them, they have a wonderful ability to be a mirror into our own mind and to invite us to forget ourselves. Because you can't see into a koan by holding back and measuring out your conceptual process doesn't help you. Not really. And whether we're doing koan study or any other zazen practice, investigating a a koan in a dharma talk brings forth energy, brings forth questions, brings forth perspectives that you may not have had before. So here, a monastic asks Yunman, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And the teachings referred to are Shakyamuni's teachings. Shakyamuni's teachings, our original and present teacher. Yunman was a major Chinese Chan master of the Tang dynasty. we're in the late 800s, early 900s. He was very famous. He took his name from the monastery that he was the abbot of, a union monastery. And he's the founder of one of the classical five schools of Zen. His teaching style is quite present in the Blue Cliff Record, in its directness and simplicity, and bare bones. I mean, it's just to the bareness of words. And, and his teachings stretch you. It can't be held by mere conceptual understanding. And as we struggle to understand his teaching, in that struggle, in our willingness to go into it, our true nature is revealed something happens. And I mentioned Dogen because he treasured Yunman and treasured the Blue Cliff Record, which is, quote, a Rinzai uh, book of koans. So, interestingly enough, human's lineage still lives on, although the school was, I, th- I think, merged with the Rinzai school later on. And it had a big influence in me early in my Zen career. There weren't many books on Zen, and one of the ones I came across was called Empty Cloud, the autobiography of the Chinese Zen master, Zhu Zhu Yang, whose dates are 1840 to 1959. And that kind of startled me. Here's this living recently deceased Zen master that was teaching and alive in China when I was alive and inspired me. Zen was just not something from the past that we've kind of got some sense of but he was a master who lived and taught and wrote an autobiography. His is his enlightenment poem. A cup fell to the ground, a sound heard. As space was pulverized, the mad mind came to a stop. So, humans' teachings have been characterized as one phrase, including three phrases, includes three phrases. So one aspect of that is a single phrase that is a perfect fit of the box and its lid. So in his response to a question, it fits perfectly. There's no give. It is exact. It permeates heaven and earth, following the waves and adapting to the currents. It reaches everywhere, heaven and earth. And yet, follows the waves and adapts to the currents. It's precisely addressing the question. Exactly. Nothing left over, nothing extra. And it cuts through all streams of delusion. Boom. There it is. There's nothing you can say about his responses. Everything has been taken away yun was a, a master of live words that are entirely alive and startling and leaping through and beyond us. It goes right into you. There are 18 koans in the Blue record involving yun which makes sense since it was compi- compiled by one of his successors. And typically, he would pose a question to the practitioners, and if no response was forthcoming, he'd answer it himself. So here are some interesting examples. He said, "Come on, pose me a question outside the Buddhist teachings." I'm almost tempted to, but I'll refrain <laughs> on behalf of the practitioners. He replied, "Even one is too much." A monastic asked Yunman, what is the teaching that transcends the Buddhas and the ancestors? So I'm picturing this. And this is Dharma encounter, right, or some equivalency to that. And someone comes up, and what is the teaching, master, that it goes beyond, even the Buddha's teaching? And Yunman says, a sesame bun. Another monastic asked Yunman, what is Buddha? And Newman said, use toilet paper. The actual translation is a dried, uh, a used shit stick, which was some way that they wiped themselves. Aiken Roshi noted that they used to use use corn cobs. um, And I'll let that one (laughs) go. (laughs) So in this case, The life and teachings referred to are Shakyamunis. And the monastic is asking, perhaps challenging, Yunman, can you sum up the Buddha's teaching, the entire canon, his entire life directly? What of your life? Can you sum it up directly? What does your life rest on? So many lives rest on impulsive karmic consciousness, right? What we think is what we do, what we say. I think we all can relate to that to one degree or another. And it's not difficult to see in this world the result of that, right? And I am positive it was not any different in the Buddha's time. And so how do we move from this endless, impulsive, karmic consciousness to a life that reflects our inherent wisdom and compassion. And when I say impulsive consciousness, keep in mind it's heavily conditioned. So the impulsive consciousness can come forth in thoughtful consideration of what I should do that follows my patterns. That last part is in parenthesis because the patterns are invisible to you. So even in careful consideration, there's that. How do we enter into our vows so that we can permit ourselves to deeply study how we tie our life up in knots of self-concern? How do we enter? How do we do that? And a good place, I think, to start is to not rest in understandings and concepts and intellection. I don't want to exclude that. That's important. It's helpful. Especially in the beginning of getting onto the path, you have to be willing to trust the fact that you're going to sit a long time just sitting, doing nothing. And in response to people's questions, like, "You're just sitting there doing nothing that we've probably all encountered?" So there's nothing wrong with, quote, "understanding," and it can be helpful and allow us to trust the process. And also, in the fostering of wisdom of Prajna, there's an aspect of consciousness which, while not dualistic, is conscious and looking and determining and using judgment in a non-dual way. So words kind of don't get at this very adequately. But we are here to get something other than a Buddhist degree in philosophy or religious studies, we're here to wake up. That's what's going on here. If you're not here to wake up, or if you're not at least considering that as a possibility, then I suspect at some point you're going to get very frustrated being here, practicing here, because there's going to be friction. Because everything's designed that way. The Buddhas and enlightened masters have tried to guide us and prod us towards realizing ourselves. What do you think this is? Amid all the commotion and suffering and concerns and fractionalized identities that we encounter in ourselves and in others, where we fight so hard to create and defend ourselves. Where do you find yourself at bottom? What is that resting on? It's not that the causes may not be good, but inevitably they seem to be contaminated by our self-centeredness. I've spoken many times of my earlier experiences during the Vietnam War. I was against the war. It was stupid. It was senseless. It was getting people killed for not real reasons, and it didn't take long for me to see that the people who agreed with me weren't that different from the people who disagreed with me in terms of their anger and frustration and hate. Not universally, but it was pretty prominent. Being deeply involved in our lives is crucial, but as we encounter through a practice, a deepening clarity, especially through our Zazen. We encounter something more fundamental than our conditioned judgments, and that I trust. That I trust. I don't trust my conditioned judgments. It's caused me so much trouble, and I suspect you. And so out of this practice, especially Zazen, I keep coming back to that, our trust in our essential nature deepens. Our practice confirms that faith as we go along. And we naturally become less reactive. It's just natural. It it happens like your hair grows. It happens like grass grows. (laughs) And we find we can respond to difficult circumstances in a manner that is less harmful to ourselves and others and more constructive. Not across the board. It's never like that because there's always new territory to, to explore. So how do we realize the Buddha's life as our life? How do we begin to understand the Buddha's teaching in a manner that does not rest in concepts and intellectual understanding? What guides us beyond what we think and feel and judge? You know, what comes to mind, I don't know if you've ever seen the old-fashioned way that Eskimos used to uh, be able to see in the midst of snow blindness with a piece of wood that went across the eyes and a little slit where the eyes were so they could peer out and it would block the sun somewhat but it was very restricted. I mean, you had a little slit for each eye, and that's all you could see. I think our life can be like that, that we just see a little bit. So we're trying to avoid snow blindness, but we can't see much. What response do we choose to each moment of our life? And what is that response based on? So we look at Zazen and liturgy and our endless interactions with people and things, and if we pick up a single teaching of the Buddhas and rely on that as a guide, it tends to become inflexible, a fixture. There is no single teaching. That is it. You can't rely on that. So not can't be sane. It can't be a teaching that we hold up and rely on. From my early days in practice, I have books filled with notes and lectures and things that stuck with me from teachings, and that were pri- my prized possession. I haven't looked at them in years. They don't help me. We can only ultimately depend on a way of being that is not bound by a particular way yet reflects us, our karma, and rests on our fundamental nature which we are practicing to realize. And it is the fundamental nature of all beings, which is crucial. And that is revealed by our zazen and by our other practices. And in seeing this for yourself so gradually, like grass grows, You never see the grass growing, but it grows. You see eye-to-eye with Shakyamuni Buddha, with the ancestors. It's the same seeing. And that's why we can chant. We can invoke all Buddhas throughout space and time, all bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, maha-prajnaparamita, great heart, perfect wisdom, We can invoke that, because we are invoking our own heart. All these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are in this zendo, as us, and far beyond any concept we have of it. So we practice through every conceivable means, every conceivable mind state, and every conceivable circumstance. That's what it means to practice. Doesn't mean to practice when we're good. Doesn't mean to practice when we're suffering. It means it doesn't matter how we feel. Doesn't matter what life brings. We are practicing our life. That is practice. We practice as if we're deeply realized. And that is important to understand. We're not putting on a play we're not rehearsing, we're not acting. We practice and the teachings come from deep realization. And we take that up, we make our vows, and we practice our Zen as if we are a Buddha. And the line between our self-conscious sense of self and the Buddha nature that we are gets thinner and thinner and thinner until it disappears. And yet, we're still here. We're still the same person. It's a miracle. Each of us within our own karmic life can realize this. There's no single right way to awaken and to live. Your way is the right way, if that's what you want. You are uniquely you, and you have your own abilities your own talents, your own karma, your own health, your own challenges that provide you with everything you need to wake up. This is a a journey of no distance. Wherever you go, there you are. That's the practice. Good stuff is happening, great. Enjoy it, but practice it. Difficult stuff is happening, sorry, feel what you feel, experience it, struggle as you must, and you practice it. Everywhere you go, you meet yourself. Here, here. Your true self can never abandon you. Your own direct experience is the way in. How appropriate. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.